Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind Stocks on the Move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 134. Well, just ahead, how will President Biden's net zero pledge impact oil companies? We're going to hear how an oil sands producer thinks it will actually benefit. Plus, big decisions about new strategies blow up in the face of the new Stitch Fix CEO. And shares of Lottery.com have collapsed since its SPAC IPO. Our guest, the CEO of Lottery.com, defends the company and says it's actually well on its way to becoming a global marketplace for games. My conversation with Lottery.com CEO Tony DiMatteo. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with Era. Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on the platform you're listening to right now or any other platform, you know, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, you name it. But if you click the subscribe button, you can make sure you hit every show. And the drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the drill down. We will have the business stories behind some stocks on the move and joining me as always to help understand these companies is executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, uh, good to see you. Good to hear you. Same right back to you, sir. Um, the uh, our, our, uh, our new intern, Cato, yeah. sits down next to me this morning and says, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? <laughs> hey, and that's I my said, line. I said, that's a good question. And he said, did you like the invitation though? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get it. That's what Isaac always oh, says. I'm already being mocked by the intern. Wow. So Corey- what stocks you're drilling down on today? You sound just like Cato. Um, let's look at Hershey Company, a company that I have rarely dug into. It's done uh, pretty well of late, but it's an interesting company. Hershey trades under HSY. Shares have risen over 21% in the past 12 months. Now, as you may know, they make chocolate bars. Do they? Uh, the Hershey Kiss uh, logo which looks like a poop emoji, but the Hershey Kiss logo is is featured. If you go to their website, it's like on the top of their, it's on every page of their website. But they've got a lot of other interesting businesses. Uh, Jolly Ranchers, Almond Joys, you know, lots of lots of uh, good and plenty, Heath Bars. They also do uh, gums and mint, icebreakers. I don't know, what's your go-to mint gum situation? Uh, I don't really have one, to be honest. I mean, I like thin mints. Well, the, what's not to like? Um, uh, they uh, do the Pilon Pilo Rico confectionery products in Mexico, the IOIO snack products in Brazil, which is actually a really big business for them. Um, they also do, uh, um, uh, what, what are the popcorn? The um, uh, Pirate Booty. Pirate Probably really big with your kids. popular over here. I'll bet you it is. It was when my kids were little too. Uh, uh, and it, it's a, that's a big category. They do Smart Pop popcorn. Who knew? Also interesting about this company, 80% of the shares are in a charitable trust for the Milton Hershey School, a private school in Pennsylvania that serves underprivileged children. It's a it's a prep school with a spectacular endowment that looks to be getting about $11 billion a year in Hershey's dividends, if you can believe that. Wow. Um, 
It's a whole other interesting story. Uh, but this company sales are just, they're healthy. They're growing at 10% a year. Profits growing just as fast. The return on equity for this company is spectacular, 62%. Um, and, you know, you wonder what happened to them during the pandemic. We know, for example, the companies, competitors like Mars, Mars is smaller in the candy bar business, but bigger in the mint and gum business, really took it on the chin during COVID because people weren't popping a mint to get fresh for a date or a meeting. They were just sitting at their home desk setups with their stinky breath and not chomping down on the mitts. These guys actually found that their e-commerce business did really well during the pandemic. And strangely, it's doing even better this year. Here is Hershey's CEO, Michelle Buck. Most of the e-commerce shoppers are not exclusively e-commerce. They shop omni-channel. So we saw some of that shifting occur. You know, relative to our business in particular, our e-commerce retail sales are up versus last year. With our omni-channel partners, despite the significant growth that, you know, we had year ago, um, and also despite the significant growth that we're seeing in bricks and mortar as well. So think of that. E-commerce continues to grow even as their customers go back and start spending a lot more on brick and mortar. Um, I, I just, this is a company I'm going to watch a little more closely going forward. It's very dividend focused because their largest shareholder by a long shot wants those dividends to keep the school running. But also, again, that return on equity is just fantastic for this company and their global growth is, you know, slow and steady and that tends to win the race. Through that school, they do a lot of good work too. I have a very good friend that used to work at Hershey. I, I'm, I'm actually, yeah, it's interesting. There, there, there have been controversies about that school and how they have had a bent towards um, uh, a Christian values, as they call Judeo-Christian values, but yeah. also some kind of maybe harder to the right uh, Christian values, quote-unquote values, and especially problems gay people have had um, at that school. Um, it's it's another interesting story there, but uh, oh, it's got nothing to do with the stuff. I don't know anything about that stuff. Yeah. I should have looked into it before I said anything nice. I'm going to have to retract my statement in next tomorrow, next week's episode. Corey, what, uh, what's your next stock you're drilling down on? Let's look at Synovus Energy. Synovus trades under S, or I'm sorry, CVE, and shares have gained 118% in a year. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic performers. Uh, probably one of the best performing uh, major oil companies um, in the world in the last year in terms of uh, uh, you know, investment performance. It's a $26, $25 billion, it's called $26 billion company. Um, and uh, it's an oil sands company, um, and they've done a merger in the last year. It's kind of a spinoff of an older oil sands company. For oil sands, famously, of course, infamously, the most polluting way to generate oil. This might be the cleanest of the oil sands companies, uh, damned with faint praise. Well, this comes in the news that President Joe Biden signed an executive order. Um, uh, uh, could be signing this very moment. Uh, we're recording this on a Wednesday. Uh, and it will direct the federal government to get to net zero emissions by 2050, along with a lot of other major countries that have promised to do so. Um, now, this company uh, is 70% of their oil comes from oil sands, uh, the bulk of which is the Christina Lake and Foster Creek developments um, uh, way up uh, to our in our neighbors to the north in Canada. And, and uh, these guys actually have, you know, in terms of how much steam they use to create their oil, they're one of the best in the in the business in terms of efficiencies. But they've seen a really dramatic turnaround. Yes, we have seen a significant increase in the price of oil in the last year. But they have uh, these guys 
absolutely bet the farm on that. Most oil companies hedge oil prices, which is to say they lock in some prices. If oil goes down a lot, they won't get crushed. But if it goes up a lot, they won't seek the benefit. These guys hedged not at all, zero hedge exposure. So the true cost of rising oil, the true price of rising oil, they were beneficiaries of. And they used that to pay down debt. They've cut their debt in half this year. They're down to $10 billion in debt, and they're going to keep cutting it. Uh, meanwhile, they're increasing production. So everything that could go right has gone right for them. And yet they are in this business of, of generating oil through a process that has been the most polluting process in the last, call it last 50 years of getting oil out of the ground. Um, so listen to their CEO talk about uh, how actually he thinks that uh, the international um, uh, agency that, uh, you know, that's guiding really the world towards this goal of net zero by 2050, that they actually think that there's a, hum, a huge uh, implied need for oil from oil sands that's responsibly produced. And CEO Alex uh, Porbox th says that uh, they're going to get that done. Here he is. We believe that responsibly produced oil will continue to be necessary to meet the world's energy needs for a very long time to come. And even in the IEA net zero by 2050 scenario, there is a huge implied supply gap between forecast oil supply at base decline rates and the world's energy needs. From our perspective, we think this represents both a challenge, but also creates a tremendous opportunity. In thinking about that continued oil demand, I firmly believe that the Canadian oil sands are well positioned to be an important part of that energy supply in the energy transition, and further that Synovus is uniquely positioned to be a supplier of choice. So, you know, you, wouldn't, you shouldn't be surprised, and I should mention these comments came the same day as President Biden's uh, um, uh, plan to sign a, the, that pledge. He didn't cite President Biden, he cited the International Energy Administration. Um, uh, but uh, I should say, uh, the excuse me, the International Energy Agency. But it is interesting that uh, these guys have really recognized kind of where they sit in the world right now and the opportunity that might not be there for them forever is there for them right now. Yeah, it sounded to me like he sees the writing on the wall. Yep. And they're going to make the best we're hearing it from all the majors uh, and all, all the other oil companies as well. Corey, what's your next drill down? I want to go back to Stitch Fix, which we've talked about a few times on the show, talked about about six weeks ago, because they announced a just miserable quarter. Well, a week, I should say that a weak quarter that the market responded to uh, by just dumping shares left, right and center. Uh, Stitch Fix trades under SFIX, SFIX. Shares have fallen 61% in a year. Yeah, it's gone from a $6 billion company to a $2 billion company the same year that they switched CEOs. I'll get to that CEO switch in a second, but let's look at this quarter, right? So their number of active clients, which had grown at 18% in the most in the last quarter, uh, when they announced the, the most recent quarter yesterday, was growing at only 12%. So and a growth in clients uh, continuing to grow, but by a lot less about 30% less, um, again, going from 18% to 12%. Revenue per client was actually a little bit better um, and growing a little bit faster. But let's look back at what happened. So in April, they announced that their founder, Katrina Lake, was going to step down, and they brought in a new CEO who had been the head of digital consulting at Bain, that Elizabeth CEO, Elizabeth Spaulding, had joined the company for a little while, and it was clear that, you know, that she was brought in there to kind of understand the business. Everybody liked everybody. She stays on as CEO. And she announced that they're going to launch a new business. Their business, of course, had been 
fixed shipments where uh, a customized, a stylist looks at what somebody has said they like, sends them a bunch of clothes based on a style quiz and a gathered information about their sizes and their style preferences, send them a bunch of clothes, they return what they don't want to keep. And they had lots of freelance stylists and, and hundreds of stylists, uh, full-time and part-time, working on these products. Well, new CEO comes in and announces she wants to try something called Freestyle. We just pick the thing you want and that's what you get, like every other retailer out there. This is the genius coming from Bain Consulting, right? Or the geniuses from Bain Consulting. So she comes in with this great idea of we're going to add this new product, Freestyle, which means you just buy a thing and, that's, and you keep it, not the fixed thing. And they tell the part-time and full-time stylists uh, that they won't be able to choose their own hours anymore. And so hundreds of them just quit. Uh, a Wells Fargo analyst, uh, Ike uh, Burrowchow, uh, went out there and actually found out that hundreds of these people were quitting back in August then um, said that the flexible hours weren't going to be uh, available to them, so they just weren't going to work for Stitch Fix anymore. So under the scenes, you see a lot of angst going on um, uh, with the new CEO's new business plan. And so sure enough, when we start to see these numbers of customer ads and they get reported to us uh, with yesterday's earnings announcement, customers just aren't coming on. In fact, it's been kind of messy, this switch to this new business model of freestyle, because it's not like they just go on a Google search find the skirt that they like or find the, you know, whatever, whatever uh, outfit of clothes, other piece of clothing that they want to buy and buy it. They've still got to go onto the Stitch Fix website. They've still got to complete all the customer profile stuff. And then do they want to go with a stylist? Do they want to buy the singular item? It just seemed like the onboarding um, was just too lengthy. And if they really wanted to get the stylist, it was a little confusing for them so uh, CEO Elizabeth Spaulding says that with their onboarding, uh, they still come there looking for the stitch fix thing and not really finding out how to get onboarded very well. She talks about, yeah, we can improve the onboarding experience. In other words, it ain't working. Here's CEO Elizabeth Spaulding. On the onboarding, you know, we really had never onboarded clients directly into Freestyle. The plurality um, of our clients, even today still using Freestyle, are fixed customers that we've introduced to Freestyle. We have started to add a lot of new clients, and we'll be adding more as we improve our onboarding experience to Freestyle. But I think what we're learning is, you know, how do we make it as simple as possible for people to start to explore? There isn't a logged out exploration experience yet with Stitch Fix. So let's unpack that a little bit. How do we make it as simple as possible? Not, we have made it as simple as possible. She's still asking the question, how do we make it as simple as possible? Because we haven't done it yet. And uh, that's why you th see this thing collapsing. I'll also say one other thing about this, Isaac, which is that Stitch Fix somehow convinced the world it was like an AI platform for retail, not just a company that sold clothes in a box. That it was a technology company. They had a great, great San Francisco-based PR firm that helped them in the telling of this story to make it a tech story, not a retail story. They got a tech valuation. And, and here's the problem that they are learning today. A tech valuation giveth and a tech valuation taketh away. I remember when Stitch Fix was one of the hot stocks you had to talk about at our former employer. Right, whereas, whereas we would never talk about all the retailers that had come public, right? We'd never talk about... <laughs> Torrid or whatever, which, you know, was an interesting retailer too and came out of public about the same time. And, you know, it didn't didn't cross the tech bar, didn't get the tech valuation and didn't get the tech PR. But at the end of the day, these guys sell clothes. I got to say, though, I there are a couple people in my life that use Stitch Fix and they're religious about it. They love it. 
Right, so they, but how they, do they, they do have some loyal customers out there. Yeah, hundred percent. And those at least two of them in LA. This, <laughs> they are coming to freestyle. That's the point. The freestyle, the switch of the business model isn't working so well. Interesting story to watch. All right, well, coming up next, we're going to talk to the CEO of Lottery.com, Tony DiMatteo. Uh, this is a business that when public threw a SPAC, you know, I always say I don't care about the stock, but it's really interesting to watch the market reaction to this thing, which has been to just dump this sucker as soon as this company de-SPAC'd and started trading as Lottery.com. Clearly, there's some concerns about their business model and can these guys make mobile lotteries a real thing and lotteries on your phone a real thing. Tony Matteo, DiMatteo tells a, an interesting tale I want to see if you believe what he's got to say. Listen up to this interview. I think you'll like it when the drill down continues. But first. The drill down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. As promised, we are joined right now by the CEO of Lottery.com. Uh, Tony DiMatteo joins us right now. You're in New York City right now. Uh, where is Lottery.com? Where are your headquarters? Oh, yeah. Hi. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're based in Austin, Texas. We moved there almost four years ago now from San Francisco. Um, moved from, oh, from San Francisco. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, I hate it when our, uh, I listen to podcasts and they say, nice to see you. Because, of course, our listeners can't see us. You've got a more ridiculous beard than uh, than I did during COVID, but less yeah. than Jack Dorsey. So you're somewhere in between. <laughs> yeah. Our listeners are missing that. Um, tell me the business of, uh, which explains the San Francisco thing. It's more San Francisco than Austin. I guess <clears throat> it's this easy top thing. I guess we can get some Texas. Sure. Yeah. Roll it out. Yeah. Um, why did you go from San Francisco to Austin? Oh, well, you know, I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of my adult life in San Francisco and I, I just, I, I thought uh, as the years went by that, they became a lot less friendly to um, business, honestly. Just, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not super excited to have people there to, to build businesses. And um, when we were looking around of like, where might we go? We, we looked at a couple, you know, different states and cities, but Austin to me feels the way that San Francisco did in the early 2000s, you know, and, and I was there for that, for the dot-com boom and bust. And I just thought, you know, this is the right vibe. It's the right kind of people. And as you've seen, the trends are is just everybody from California and New York are all either going to Miami or Austin. They're all moving there very quickly. And I just got, you know, a, an early start on that. So I guess. A uh, yeah. Years ago. It's a, you certainly see it with some big companies like Oracle and HP and, you know, um, and I think and, Tesla just moved their headquarters there. Well, you know, you know how much uh, Elon Musk wants to pay his fair share of taxes too. So that's there's a tax <laughs> right. advantage in Texas, as you may have heard. Um, so uh, that aside, um, tell me about Lottery.com. Tell me the the business of Lottery.com. Sure. So, you know, um, well, you know, I'll say where we started, which is just we had the idea of we should find a way to let people play the lottery from their phone. Um, that was just at, at the very beginning, at the very sort of essence of the company. And, you know, at, at the time, I, I, I had met my co-founder, Matt, um, probably about a year and a half or two years before we, we founded this company. I was running a tech company. He was running a different one at the time. And we decided we should build things that should exist and that should happen, that have to happen eventually. And so, you know, that's obviously the lottery is a, a huge industry, a, a giant TAM. Uh, it's about, you know, 80 billion in the U.S., another 400 outside of the U.S., and that's going to continue to grow. 
And so we thought if we could find a way to let people play in a legal and compliant way that is not adversarial or disruptive to the existing lottery industry, that, that we could really have something there. And that was the original idea. And then we've been executing on that now for, again, you know, about, about seven years. And the, uh, the fundamental business is, is what? A lot of, of course, highly, highly regulated business. The, the, the business is built on, I would argue, more than anything else, the sale of the lottery tickets and, and, the, and the process by which they're sold and, and, what, and encouraging retailers to sell those tickets. No, that, that's, that's correct. You know, each state, they, own, they have their own lottery. It's, it, they own that, that, that game. And it's, it's important for them, to obviously, to, you know, uh, uh, attract new users and, and let people play the games. But it's difficult for a state to go online. Uh, it, it's, it can be very hard and, and maybe impossible in, in, in some states. And so what we offer is our value proposition is very clear, which is that, look, we're here to sell your product for you for free to the consumers. We can just let you, you know, help you go online without the additional investment or any, any investment really into trying to do that yourself. And so we're an easy way to come in um, and bring those offerings online and attract, you know, younger generations and, and people who maybe aren't the traditional lottery player. Now, there are some big public businesses in the lottery business in terms of, but they, they usually sell the mm -hmm. machines, right? Or they, or they help. Um, uh, the, but the actual process is usually a small business owners selling the tickets. Where do you interact with them? Obviously, they don't want to give away that business. Getting the license to sell tickets is a whole business. How, wh with whom do you, do you uh, contract? Sure. No, yeah, absolutely. There are the um, sort of the large lottery operators who have contracts with the states, you know, who ultimately manufacture and produce the terminals that print out those tickets. Scientific then, games, IGT. That's right. Exactly. Interlot, you know, and, and so, um, you know, effectively, our model is when we come into a state, typically we obtain a lottery license the same way that a, a typical retailer would be the same one that a gas station or a bodega or a mom and pop shop would get. Um, and we comply to all the laws and regulations around, you know, operating that. And then we act as a courier. And so the way to think about us is if you think about like a DoorDash, right, which is that they're not the restaurant. They are just they're getting the product that you ask them to get you and then delivering it to you. Uh, and so we do effectively the same thing. But the difference is that obviously for us, everything is digital. So we don't actually have to deliver that physical ticket to our end user. We can manage the interest of that ticket. So we procure the ticket in a secure environment. We you know, check the numbers, we redeem the winnings, we cash you out to your, your balance, and then you can choose to either you know, buy more tickets with that balance or cash that back down into your payment method, whatever that was. Um, and so for that, we charge a service fee, which starts at about a dollar. And, you know, if you compare that to what you've seen, like in, in DoorDash, you know, before my last trip, uh, I, I ordered a, a $5 burger to my house for my son for, I think I paid $13. And so there's, you know, it's already been proven that people are willing to pay for the convenience of not having to leave their house. And especially in COVID times of what that means, um, that's been a, a big win for us, obviously. But even pre-COVID is we've more than proven that, you know, a consumer is willing to sort of pay that convenience to one, make sure that they get the ticket. Two, to make sure that that ticket is never lost. And, you know, there's about roughly $2 billion in unclaimed winnings in lottery, meaning it's people that have a ticket. They won something, but they right. maybe they put it in their glove box or they forgot about it or they lost it, um, and they just don't get those winnings. Whereas with us, every ticket that we ever, you know, uh, ever, ever goes through our system is always redeemed. And so there's 100% redemption all the time. Where, where is that stat from, the $2 billion? I've wondered oh, about it, that. 
No, it, well, it's from uh, a couple of different studies uh, around the world that sort of aggregate into that into that number. But it, it is a difficult number to sort of uh, to, to extract from the overall data. Uh, and always a good story. Sure, of course. Probably a good rom com or two. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so, so you guys. So, unlike a retailer that takes a percentage of the ticket, you you've got a flat fee per ticket. How, explain that difference. Well, you know, it, it, so we do still get that same fee. So I'll say typically a retailer will get between five to 7% of the face value of the ticket for selling that ticket. That's actually a commission paid by the state. So right. if, if, if you're a gas station, you're going to get that. And um, so we still, we do still get that, but we also, again, charge the, the service fee to the end user for the convenience of us managing and operating the entire ticket process. Uh, that sounds like a, you get more. We do, we do, we do, we, we get more. Uh, yes, that's right. Um, do the, it also seems that, that you would be a kind of a mega retailer of lottery tickets be just because you've got the ability to, to cross a lot of both state, both, you know, regional lines, zip codes, whatever, uh, area codes for that matter, and for that matter, state lines in selling lottery but, tickets. But of course that's not legal. Uh, so you're correct in, in, in all in cases. Way. I mean, there's, there's Powerball things that are, that are multi-state lotteries, of course. Right. So, so, you know, when we enter a state, we have to have a retail presence, whether that's our own or whether we partner with somebody. Um, but we cannot sell across state lines, which is very important. You know, the, the states are protective of their lottery revenue and they should be. And so whenever you open up our app, we check your location at that time. And then we want to be able to, uh, you know, show you whatever games you can legally play at that moment in time. And so if you are based in, let's say, California, you take a trip, you come to, to Dallas or Austin, you open up our app, we're going to show you Texas tickets because it's important that we do not sell across state lines. We, we cannot do that and we would never do that. Um, but additionally, is as we grow, as we're getting into other verticals like sports betting and, and other types of verticals. So if you you know land in a, you know, in a country where we can actually offer you sports betting, then we want to offer you that as well. So the, the, the global vision of the company is to be a global marketplace for all types of games. So whenever you come to our platform, we want to show you whatever games you're legally allowed to play. It's very similar to what Uber does. If you've done some international travel, like I've, I've opened up Uber in countries where I, I, you're supposed to pay in cash, right? Which was a new experience for me. But what Uber does is they have a different offering wherever you open up the app, where you are at that moment in space and time. And I think that's effectively what our app is. Yeah, I, I, you you mentioned um, you know global marketplace. The buzzwords in your in your SEC filings are are uh, chock full, um, which is to say you've got you mentioned blockchain, you mentioned sure. uh, online uh, sports betting, you mentioned you know global marketplaces. Um, I'm going to let you go hog wild. I don't, I don't, you're not trying to promote right. your stock, but but you know uh, blockchain really. Oh, definitely blockchain. Really, yeah. No, that's that's an important part. You know, I. I've, I've believed for years that the, the future of online gaming, I think all of it has to move to, the, to blockchain at some point. And, you know, it's, it's so really what are you, about- what are you doing functionally now? Sure. So I'll say in the, in the current revision of our platform is we use a, a private chain to record every transaction that ever happens on our platform. And that's for auditing purposes. So if somebody buys a, let's say, a, you know, a, a state game or a multi-state game is that we record their the, the ticket numbers, the the user ID, the timestamp, obviously, and all of those ver all of those data. But it's points a private to, chain, so it's like a database, a, really. That's correct. So the the current revision is a is a private chain. What we've announced recently is that we are creating a blockchain-based gaming platform, and I think the difference there is, you know, there are there are there are plenty of 
I'll say crypto lottery projects that are out there right now. Uh, I'll say most of them I don't think are licensed in any way. But the the real drawback or what's limiting them is that you have to hold crypto and able to to be able to play. So you have to have ETH or Bitcoin or whatever to play in this game. And then, you know, the decentralized game happens, the draw happens, and then somebody wins or or doesn't win. Um, The difference in what we're building is we can we believe we can leverage our brand and say, let's we can create our own game that would operate outside of the U.S. because we would never want to be antagonistic to the U.S. lotteries. It's still a very important relationship for us. But we can run these games in multiple countries and really create a, a global game where we are the actual operators. The, the, the draw can happen on chain and people can trust the integrity of that game. And so you can and but also be able to play in either fiat, you know, your, your choice of currency or in crypto and be paid out in the same way. And so that, I think, opens up a lot of avenues for us and a lot of jurisdictions and allows us to capture just a, a very, very large audience as we And when forward. do you expect to launch this product? You know, I, I believe it'll still be in, in 2022. Is This is a, a huge priority for us and I want it done as, as soon as possible. But also to be realistic is from a, I've, I've done a lot of engineering obviously and it, it always takes a little bit longer than you expect. Um, but I, you know, my hope is to launch that in, in Q2 with a, at least our, our first game, which will be a, uh, you know, a, a, a a progressive jackpot that runs several times a week. And have you picked a cryptocurrency to base it on? I, you know, I, I'll say we haven't announced that yet, so I need to be a little bit careful about that. But I'll, I'll say what we look for are. Um, so you, you have very, picked it, but you haven't announced it. Is what you're saying? Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah that, that, I'll say I have very, very strong leanings on on the the, the chain that we're going to to, to choose and announce. Um, but it's you know. Very high throughput, very secure, and very scalable at at you know at, at scale is to do. Well, it, I hope it, so. Yeah. Um, I mean, why would and, you pick one that isn't? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Uh, let, me, let me suggest that you don't pick one that isn't scalable and also can't complete a transaction first, like Bitcoin, for example. Yeah, but that's we'll, up we'll to you. Good luck slowest, with that. The, yeah, we'll pick the slowest one that costs the most amount of money. Right. Uh, exactly. To make a exactly. <laughs> well, let's get back to your actual business. So, how many states are you in right now legally? So we're in twelve states right now. Okay. And what's the volume you're doing in terms of sales? Uh, you know, I, well, I, I have to be careful about that. You know, I, it, I don't think that we've announced, uh, I have to be really careful about what I say there. I think, you know, we're in the millions of transactions, obviously. And, but I, I would say we're really in the beginning of this is, is pre DSPAC is we did not have the capital to pour into marketing. We have worked for several years on um, perfecting our user funnel. So our cost per acquisition is about $4. Um, which I think is is quite low, even in our in our space, but also if you look at any other gaming space, it's, cost for customer it's very, acquisition. Very That's right. Yes. And what's the um, customer value? Like, how long is a customer with you at that point? You know, it's, it's uh, so uh, it's it's roughly about seventeen dollars in the first year. Uh, I think those are actually old numbers, but I think those are the latest ones that we've officially put up. Um, and so, you know, we basically, a user comes in and they pay for themselves within the first roughly two months, usually, uh, which I think is, is great. Again, if you compare that to other verticals or even with sort of similar competitors to us, um, and uh, in terms of retention, there's, there's really two types of players in the lottery world, which is, you know, our, our metrics typically mirror the, the retail world. They're sort of a lottery enthusiast who have their lucky numbers, which is sort of, you know, their maybe their family's birthdays, their birthdays, et cetera. They have those that set of lucky numbers and they could, they're going to play those basically every single week. 
Um, and then there's a lottery, you know, an occasional player that only plays when the jackpots are high. Maybe that's 100 million, 200 million, whatever it is, whatever that trigger is for them. Uh, but what we what we found is even if we can convert that occasional player when the jackpot is high and we do a you know a specific marketing push then that even if they don't play again for another six months till the jackpot's high again is about eight eight out of ten times as they come back to us. So it's a very sticky product and by leveraging our brand, it's it it just requires very few ad impressions to convert somebody to a lottery.com user. Um, because and, they they know the lottery, they understand it and they just oftentimes yeah. believe that the lottery has now gone online. And to be clear, so I asked you about how big the business is. When I look at the your SEC filings, the first nine months of, of the current year, or I should say, of la- is it last year? You did uh, um, through September, just to be clear, I'll speak English. Let me try again. Sure. September 30, uh, 2021, the first nine months of the year, you had $47 million in revenues, right? That's right. Yeah. So, um, uh, and uh, profitable even. Imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's- uh, $8 which million dollars in profit. Yeah, it's, it's, I think, quite unique for a, for a gaming company, for sure. Um, and we expect to be a, 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 an EBITDA positive company going forward. And, um, you know, it, it's honestly, we're, we're very lucky to have the brand that we have because that is our best asset, which is that we can acquire a user for so much less than any of our competitors can just because we are lottery.com. Um, and so that is our biggest advantage and what has opened up so many more doors for us in terms of um, you know, our, our affiliate marketing and, and how we get partnerships and even entering into other countries. So we, we continue to expect to be EBITDA positive as we move forward. So I, I always tell you, you, you could uh, fact check me for our listeners. I always tell the CEOs before they come on the show, I don't care about the stock. I just want to know about the business. Uh, I did say that, didn't I say that? Sure, you did. Back me up, Tony, please. <laughs> uh, but in fact, in your case, I care about the stock just a little bit uh, okay. because you guys did uh, uh, announce this, this SPAC transaction and the stock price has absolutely collapsed since then. Yeah. Um, uh, suggesting, uh, I'll just say, a lack of confidence in the, in the business and or the share issuance that could come with the, with the warrants if the stock, stock price would have to, I think, about triple from here or maybe double from here in order for the warrants to convert. But you would suddenly have tens of millions of more shares out there if those warrants convert and the stock gets up to, I think, 12 or $13 a share. Um, that I, Having been there a little bit, that's not a good feeling in your stomach. And I can't imagine what it's like as a CEO, but what, what does that tell us about the, what the market's getting wrong about your business? Presumably you think the direction of the stock price is incorrect. No, no, I agree. I think it, it is incorrect. And there's a lot of misinformation out there about sort of, uh, you know, issues, issuances of, of, of equity and things like that. Um, from, from our perspective is it, it's important to not be overly reactive to the, to the stock price. And it's really our focus is to execute and over the next couple of months, make the announcements that sort of, clear up any of that misinformation. Um, you know, I think we have some great partners that we can announce very soon, some M&A activity that we'll announce soon and we'll be back to where we were. Um, it's not concerning for us. We understand we've been through tough times, much tougher than these, obviously. I think we're in a great position as a company, probably the best position we've ever been in ever in the in the seven you know, years that we've existed. So it's a matter of um, staying focused and uh, and just just executing and that will bring the, the price back up. And I, I I'm hopeful and I think quite a bit higher. I and think we're uh, way underpriced. G- give me, I wouldn't have a lot of time left, but I would give me one fact that's out there that you think that is wrong. Well, you know, I, I'll say uh, I saw one that, um, well, there, there's quite a few, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you one that I saw, which is uh, just the, I, in my opinion, a, a, well, potentially I'll say, um, the 
misreading of our filings. Uh, you know, I, I saw one which was that, uh, why did we change our auditors, right? And the, we did not change our auditors. The fact is that when you go through a SPAC, the, you know, uh, TDAC had their auditors. We had our own auditors as the target. TDAC their was the, the Trident Acquisition Corporation, which was the name of the SPAC that you merged lottery.com into. That's correct, right? And usually and so, both have an auditor. The company that's, that's going into the SPAC and the SPAC, which is about to disappear. Right, <laughs> right. And so their auditor went away because they don't exist anymore because of the business combination. And so now we have all, our auditors, which has not changed, but that was just one of one example of, uh, you know, I think in many cases, the intentional misreading and then the, you know, uh, propagating those, the, those facts online would lead to, you know, um, a, lo a lower stock price. But there's, there's been others that I probably can't comment on, but uh, that's part of the SPAC world and, and part of being a public company. And so we understand that and, you know, we'll, we'll make it right. Uh, interesting stuff. Interesting company, lottery.com. Tony DiMatteo, appreciate your time greatly. Thank you so much, Corey. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, coming up next on the drill down, we'll have the number that drill down bite that one number that tells us a whole lot about lottery.com when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms. You can listen to The Drill Down on your smart speaker. But wherever you do it, you can subscribe and listen to every single Drill Down podcast. It's as simple as clicking that subscribe button and follow us so you catch every show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect directly with us on our website, bizpod.net. We're back with the drill and bite that one number that tells us a whole lot. I've only had one coffee. It sounded like I had two, didn't it? For a second there. Yeah. Two and a okay. half. Whoa. So let's talk about lottery and numbers. I do want to talk to you about the lottery period for just a brief moment. But first transactions per user. I thought that was an interesting number. Oh. These guys say in three months they're doing 12.44 transactions per user, which uh, that's a lot to me. I mean, it's basically a ticket every week. Wow. Uh, That's I pretty was, good. Although yeah. it's, it's 3.8 tickets per transaction, but I, the byte's only one number, and that byte is 12.44. 12.44 transactions per user. So the average user is uh, using lottery.com about once a week. I like it. I mean, you know, hey, the, I mean, those are good numbers to build on. Or I guess maybe that's not true. If they're doing 3.8 tickets per transaction, then the average user is going in there and buying four tickets, but only visiting every three weeks. In any case. You know, I just went down a rabbit hole. I have no idea what's going on right now. All right, uh, lottery tickets, your take. How many times <laughs> do you buy lottery so my lottery tickets? Lottery my take is I don't buy them. Because? Um, it, that's a different show. No, it's not. It's a tax on the poor is what it is. <gasps> It's, it's a it it's a tax on the poor is. and the stupid, and it's and it's it's abusing their dreams. Well, it's all about just capitalizing, uh, taking advantage of people's hopes and dreams, wishes. My uh, um, and inability to do math. Well, I don't fault people for doing it. I mean, it brings people joy, and it's nice to have something to look forward to and to hope Not for. Always. Some people brings people poverty, and they they blow their money. That happens of, as well. It can instead be of both, saving money, they're putting buying lottery regards. But um, you know, I. And I am guilty of buying a lotto ticket every now and then when it reaches that four hundred million dollar pot. 
When your odds are worse? Yeah, when my odds are worse, I always buy a lottery ticket. All right, so here's the thing. So my uh, <laughs> my, my father, uh, his thing about the lottery, which is, of course, so fascinating to teenage boys, uh, the idea of all that money was think about what you do with the money. Think uh-huh. about how much, what, what you would actually want to spend the money on. Right. Um, and, I, and I have, in fact, with, with my kids, I have bought them lottery tickets when they've had a curiosity and said, I'll give you a lottery ticket if you tell me what you do with the money. Okay. And what, do they do, I, what would they do with it? When my daughters were little, they actually talked about giving money to the poor, but they both wanted private jets, though. Good for them, man. I want but, both. Yeah, why not? The private jet and giving money to the poor. Yeah, I don't think that my children know what the lottery is. I don't. I hope they don't find out for a while. Yeah, I, I've. But I my kids are a lot younger than yours, so I am giving money to the poor. Not enough. <laughs> I'm not flying private. Also, not enough. You've been listening to Drill Down. Maybe way too much, you might think, right now. But we are grateful for your time. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Our editor extraordinaire Ben Wilson, up in the wilds of Oregon. We're grateful for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and we appreciate your time again. Uh, this has been the Drill Down Podcast, a production of the Business Podcast Network. <laughs>